Good morning, everyone. All right, let's try that one more time. Good morning, everyone. All right, thank you so much. Um, man, I have to just tell you, I am just have so much respect for your pastor, for Mike and Jody. We had a meal about a year and a half ago, and uh, they don't know this, but they just really ministered to my wife and I. We were kind of going through some kind of a rough patch and a few things with ministry and such and their honesty, their vulnerability. And uh, so I just want you to know how much I respect them, how much I respect what you are doing as a church for the glory of Christ. And I count it as a great joy and privilege that we are in the same team together for the gospel, for the glory of God. Um, in a short bit, let me kind of give you a roadmap of how we're going to spend the next 38 minutes. We're going to read from Amos chapter 5, and so I want you can, even right now, you can look for Amos chapter 5 in your Bibles or in your app or what have you, and I'm going to explain the context behind it, and then we'll navigate through a conversation about what it means to have a theology of justice. But before we do that, I want to just give you a little bit of some background information, even about myself, if I may. I'm um, Eugene, and I am turning 44 in a couple months. I uh, am going through my midlife reflection right now. Sounds much more spiritually healthy. And I was born in Korea, immigrated when I was six years old to San Francisco. My wife and I, we've been married now for about 18 years. Uh, Min Hee is a family and marriage therapist. Pause for dramatic effect, which means she wins all the arguments in our home. She knows all the tricks, and we have three children, a 15, 13, and 11-year-old. If you know my children's names, you'll have a good sort of understanding of who I am, because their names reflect our worldview. For example, their names are both biblical and also have pop culture references. Okay? So we love the scriptures. And we want to engage our culture with the truth of Scripture. For example, our oldest, her name is Jubilee. Jubilee is from Leviticus. It's God's promise of restoration every 50 years to erase debt. It's a true, beautiful concept. And Jubilee also is an X-Men character. Okay, wrong crowd, wrong crowd. Okay. And then secondly, our... Second daughter, her name is Trinity. Don't judge us. She's not yet seen the film Matrix. And it's a great truth that we just sang about, about who God is. And then lastly, our son, his name is Jedi. Jedi. I'm a big Star Wars fan. And Jedi is actually from the Bible, from Solomon's Hebrew name, which was Jedediah. And uh, George Lucas, with this Judeo-Christian background, many of his themes from Star Wars are from the Bible. And so Jedediah means God's chosen beloved, God's chosen beloved. And when I share this story, inevitably after service, several numerous young men come up to me afterwards and they often say, um, Pastor Eugene, how did you convince your wife to name your son Jedi? Teach us, O Yoda. <laughs> so can I just share this one nugget of wisdom? 
you know, anytime you take away free will in any friendship, relationship, including marriage, or even in global proportions, revolutions will begin. Fights will happen. It's just the case. So when Minhi, when we found out that Minhi was pregnant and we were having a son, I went to my wife and I said, um, I would like to name our son Jedi. And she said, no. <laughs> so I said, I want to name our son Jedi. <laughs> Only a third of you got that. That was really good. I still do this. I go, no more chick flicks at our home. And she said, no. So we actually fought about this. This is horrible. We actually fought about this. And so eight and a half months into the pregnancy, I eventually went to my wife and I said, Minhee, I'm so sorry. You're right. It's only fair, only right, and only just that you, the mother of our child, you should choose our son's name. And she was so happy. So I said, here's your choice. <laughs> Young men, write this down. It's Jedi or Frodo. One, one of these two. One of these two. And I'm so glad that she chose wisely. <laughs> because Frodo Cho does not sound right to me. Personally. So, in a short bit, I'm going to read, or we're going to read Amos 5 together. But it's not going to make sense if you don't understand the context. And this is part of the beauty and depth of Scripture, is that we get to read the Scripture, not just for what we're reading, but to see it in the larger picture of God's bigger story and narrative. God is still speaking to the world today. Now today, when you mention the word prophet or prophetic, it's kind of meant to be a compliment. When you say, ah, this person has a prophetic voice, uh, it's meant to be an encouragement, an elevation, a sort of an, a praise for their ministry or work. But I, what I want you to know is that during the context of the Old Testament, especially during the times of prophets, the word prophet or prophetic was not a good word. You were hated, vilified, misunderstood, ostracized, marginalized. No one liked you. In particular, because the word that you gave oftentimes was counter-cultural. And prophets, they basically had a message and a call. And the call was repent. Now, in a short bit, well, let me explain this to you now. In today's world, the word repent is seen with a lot of negative light. In my view, the word repent is the most, one of the most beautiful words in Scripture. The problem is we've been seeing repent or we've heard repent from angry preachers who've been screaming at us in some way, and I really think it's meant to be said in the most loving, gracious way. Repent. Because why is that good news? Because what God is saying is, I have a better way for you. I have a godly way for you. I know what's best for you. I created you. And so he says, repent. Next time you feel the Holy Spirit convicting you to repent, man, that is gospel. 
That is good news. That is grace for you. But I want you to know that Amos was not well-liked. He was not popular. In today's world, when you ask someone, who are some of the more well-known prophets, Amos would likely not be in your top five. We think about Isaiah, for example, but Amos is not in our top five, which is the reason why I want to explain a little bit of his story to you so that this passage makes some sense. Ballpark dates. Amos is doing his ministry around 750 BC. The king that was in power at that time was a guy named Jeroboam II. Kind of a ruthless guy in some ways. So here's Amos around 750 BC, and he lives in a town called Tekoa. Tekoa is in the southern region. Like when you look at the Old Testament and the New Testament, everything happens in a particular region. Tekoa is in the southern part near a larger city called Jerusalem. And eventually, he has to head up north to engage in some work and business, and we'll get there soon. But before Amos becomes a prophet or engages in prophetic work, he has a job. There's two aspects to his job. He was a shepherd and a farmer. Now, I want you to know these things because if you saw Amos during the time of Amos' life and you saw your children, I'm going to be very blunt. What you would say is, kids, don't be like Amos. Don't be like a prophet because prophets are hated and misunderstood. And don't be like a shepherd or a farmer. Then and now we have some sort of a hierarchy of class or significance in our culture. Now, the reason why I want to share this with you, your jobs, your degrees, your resumes, I'm not saying those things aren't important, but what I am saying is that today, in our pursuit as followers of Jesus, the most important thing is not our jobs, our resumes, our degrees, our social economic class. The most important thing is the word, yes, Lord. That's the definition of discipleship, that God can use anyone and everyone. God can use an executive at Microsoft, and God could surely use a shepherd and a farmer, and God can use you. Because the truth is, it's really about God's power, God's might, and God's grace, and we're simply along for the ride, if you will. So... What happens with Amos is that as he travels up north, he has a certain product to sell. These are the produce from sycamore trees. As a farmer, he specializes in sycamore trees, and he has to head up north because the demand for his product is up there. And as he travels up north, he begins to see and witness things that begin to provoke and evoke questions about injustice. He begins to see great disparity of wealth, unlike anything he's ever seen before. But in particular, it wasn't so much that he was criticizing the rich people. My message here is not to be critical of you or your wealth or your 401ks or your homes, but what he saw was he saw wealthy people who professed in God, who professed in Yahweh, but they were getting rich 
exploiting the poor. They were exploiting the poor. They were developing systems and structures to benefit them and exploiting them. And then they had the gall and the audacity to kind of evoke erroneous false theology to explain why they were blessed and why the poor were disliked or not blessed by God. This disturbed him so much that eventually he receives three dreams from God. And the book of Amos records three of those dreams. Sometime when you have a chance this week or in the weeks to come, I'd love to encourage you to just to read through Amos and to read through those dreams. Eventually, this compels him so much. It convicts him so much. He goes to a temple called Bethel Temple where these religious people are worshiping. And then God speaks this prophetic word through Amos to the people. Now, let's read Amos chapter 5, verses 21 to 24, and I'm going to read from the version called The Message. Listen for the word of God. I can't stand your religious meetings. I'm fed up with your conferences and conventions. I want nothing to do with your religion projects, your pretentious slogans and goals. I'm sick of your fundraising schemes, your public relations and image making. I've had all I can take of your noisy ego music. When was the last time you sang to me? Do you know what I want? I want justice, oceans of it. I want fairness, rivers of it. That's what I want. That's all I want. And this was not well received. A priest by the name of Amaziah, he was furious and he began to spread word and rumors about Amos and then actually tries to banish him, not just from the temple, not just from the region, but from the country altogether. Now, why is this important? Brothers and sisters, I want you to know that when we follow God, there will be times when you will be applauded and encouraged. There will be those that will say, that was amazing. And then there are going to be times, there will be times when you will not necessarily be popular. Please take this to heart. Our calling as followers of Jesus is not to be popular. It's not to be relevant. It's not to be glamorous. Ultimately, our call is to be faithful to God. Now, I'm not suggesting that we have a combative spirit. Not at all. The instructions from the New Testament, Paul tells us to live in peace with other people. But there is a distinction if you and I are obsessed with wanting to be liked by every single person then something else becomes our Lord. This is why we have to understand that while we seek to live in peace, we do not live for the glory, glamour, and applause of men and women. But we seek to be faithful, and Amos was seeking to be faithful. Now, in the corner of your mind, I suspect 
it's possible that you might be thinking, is this guy coming here and criticizing our church? Because you have a church, you have music, you have lights, and I'm not at all. That's not my heart and intent. In fact, I want you to know that Quest, we do all of these things. We have services, we have a building, we've got a cafe with a $5,000 espresso machine, we hold conferences, we do all of these things, and it's not even what Amos is trying to say. Amos isn't saying that these things in itself are wrong or evil or bad or ungodly, but this is the crux of the message that I need you to understand. What Amos is saying is all these things that we're doing, if these things are not informing us, if they're not transforming us, if they're not changing us by the grace of God, if we're not taking heed to what we're singing, what we're reading, what we're hearing, if what we're doing here over like right now for the next 90 minutes, if this isn't impacting our marriages, the way that we love and encourage and speak destiny and purpose into our children, if it's not changing the way that we want to engage and love our neighbors, if it's not changing the way that we see ourselves as missionaries in our workplaces, if it's not changing the way that we see ourselves as light and salt in Redmond, in Eastside, in Washington, in this country and beyond, I'm going to be very blunt here, then what Amos is saying is that what we're doing right now, this is a show. It's a show. It's a show where we come for 90 minutes, and because it's a show, what you care about and what we care about is how do we entertain people? And so Amos, burdened by these convictions, he goes and he tells these people, it's all about your noisy ego music, your schemes and your stuff. And it's not about transformation and about pursuing the character of God. There's a lot of things that we can speak about today. And in our limited time, I want to maybe share three or four things that will help us kind of build a theology of justice. Here's the first one. The first one is we need to know why justice matters. Justice matters not because it has become trendy or elevated in our modern church culture. Justice matters over Lake ultimately because justice reflects the character of God. Now, let me put it this way. It will be nonsensical for you and I to somehow surgically extract love from God's character. Isn't it amazing that part of God's character is he is a God of love? Sheer, profound, deep, magnanimous love. You cannot extract that out of God's character. You cannot somehow extract grace out of God's character. Man, we are followers of Jesus purely because God is loving and God is gracious. We're able to do ministry and engage in relationships because God is gracious. You cannot extract it out. You cannot extract holy, holiness from God's character. 
But somewhere along the conversation, somewhere along the centuries, people began to somehow extract the character of just and justice out of God's character. To the point now that if you speak about justice in the church, there are some people who would threaten you as saying, that's a political agenda. You're being left, you're being right, you're being a socialist, you're being whatever it might be. We talk about justice not for those reasons, because our God is just. When you look at the Old Testament, when you read it through, you'll see at least over 200 references about God and justice. Isaiah 61 verse 8, one of my favorite verses, it says, I, the Lord, love justice. So why should Christians care about justice? Because justice reflects the character of God. Justice is about discipleship because while singing, preaching, listening, reading scripture, all of these things are beautiful and good. You guys are blessed to be at Overlake. You're blessed to have pastors that care for you, and you're also blessed to have leaders that understand this is worship, but this is not the totality of worship. You see, when you exit those doors, and you exit the parking lot, and you enter into your world, I want you to know, worship continues when you exit these doors. That's what Amos is saying. Why have we compartmentalized this and it hasn't impacted the way that we live our lives? In short, justice is worship. Now, the cool news is I know you get this. You get this in part because that's part of the DNA and culture of your church. Justice matters to you. But I think this is where the deceptive or where the tension may, may lie. You see, for those who get it, if we're not careful, we're going to end up more in love with the idea of justice. You see, when you ask a Christian, do you love compassion? Do you love generosity? Do you like justice? There is not a Christian that will say, I hate justice. Because we all love justice. So the truth then is, we all love justice until there's a personal cost. Now, you need to know, there is always a cost to justice. There is always a cost to following Jesus. There's a cost to discipleship. I love Jesus because in part, he was pretty much straightforward. He wasn't into the bait and switch thing. He pretty much says, count the cost, take up the cross daily and follow me. Some of you, I think I might be losing, so let me give you an analogy. I love exercise. I know you can tell. I love exercise. Okay, let me be more honest here. I love the idea of exercise. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because it would be a widespread revival conviction going on here. 
But do you understand, I love the idea of exercise. In fact, I had a gym membership for 10 years. I paid $8.99 because a small little dinky gym where we used to live in Snohomish years ago got bought out by 24-7, $8.99. And I always said, oh, it's just too hard to let go. Over 10 years, I went once. You're laughing at my confession. This is not a very pastoral church. Just saying. I have a treadmill at our home. I've been on it once this past year. It's being very honest. I have a thigh master. I have an ab buster and a butt buster. Do you know how many calories you lose thinking about exercise? <laughs> it's not a trick question, right? It's zero. <laughs> I was just in New York this past week on vacation with our family, and I did it again. I packed my running shoes because I just thought, oh, the idea of running down Fifth Avenue, saying hello to Jay-Z and Alicia Keys. I did not run. And that's what I'm saying, is that as Christians, it's easy for us, convenient for us, to be enamored by the idea of certain things. The idea of following Jesus, the idea of generosity, the idea of justice. When God speaks to you and God has spoken, is speaking, and will speak, I pray for the courage to say yes to obey. The reality is that our world is broken. It is fallen. There's so much pain. I don't have to recap the news for you. But doesn't it seem like in the past month in particular, it's been so heavy? The situation in Gaza and Israel on both sides, to see the images of children, to see images of violent rockets going back and forth. The situation in Syria where you have just so many millions of children that are refugees right now. The horrific evil of ISIS and what's going on in Iraq. And you know in this past week, and I'm not here to make any political statements, but to see the anguish and pain of what's transpired in Ferguson. And to see people hurting. And when it's all said and done, you see the image of this young 18-year-old black young man dead. The world is broken. And I know if you're like me, the temptation is just to kind of, you know, I don't want to really be involved. Well, I've got news for you. I know God's will and God's purpose for you. God's will and purpose for you is to be light and salt of the world today. That's our purpose. I don't know all the specifics of your lives, but I do know that in God's sovereignty, he saw that it would be good that you and I be alive at this point in human history to be light and salt. See, God calls us not to be just merely a light to the light, but a light to the world. 
What we do here among one another is good and important and valuable, and we're also called to be a light to the world. So when you ask, Eugene, how is it possible that we wrap our minds around so much brokenness in the world? I don't have all the answers for you, but I believe that it grows deeper in choosing to care. That's it. Care. It's not rocket science. It's choosing to be in the path where our hearts reflect God's heart. The things that give God joy, may that give us joy. The things that break the heart of God, may they also break our heart. God, help my heart to beat to the rhythms of your heart rather than, at times, my own selfishness, my greed, or the rhythms of this world. You see, we have to care, and we have to be aware of what's going on. I love the wisdom of William Wilberforce, the abolitionist who said these words, quote, you may choose to look the other way, but you can never say again that you did not know. See, this is why I really respect your pastors. They're not afraid to tell you that there is brokenness in the world. We're not creating a bubble for ourselves. So if a theology of justice begins with us having an understanding of God's heart, and it continues with caring, well, let me just share a brief story with you. Some years ago, I was visiting a uh, jungle, a makeshift classroom in the jungles of Burma. And when I walked into this classroom, and I want you to use your imagination, it was about 15 desks and chairs, really old furniture that they made on their own. There was this huge beat-up chalkboard in front of the classroom, and it was a classroom for first to fifth graders. I walk in, and instantaneously, my eyes were drawn by a poster that was plastered on that chalkboard. It was disgusting. It was not appropriate for first to fifth graders. What was it? It was a collage of photos of men, women, and children with missing body limbs and blood oozing out of them. First to fifth graders. My host, sensing I was disturbed, he actually tells me to come closer. Reverend Cho, Reverend Cho, closer, closer, in his broken English. And then he points me to a bottom row where there's these greenish contraptions. And then he says, these landmines, we must teach children avoid landmines. Heartbroken, just crushed. You see, I can never say I no longer knew. This is why awareness is so important, that we have to continually grow in our awareness. So 
our theology of justice, it becomes even that much more deeper. Here it is when we realize that justice is about dignity. Now, let me explain dignity to you. Jesus performs some amazing miracles. I mean, his resume is profound. The walking on the water, not bad. The feeding of the thousands, pretty impressive. But what gets me all the time, when I read through the Gospels, my heart just stops, it skips, it flutters when I see those moments when Jesus takes the time, the Lord of the universe, the Son of God, God himself, he takes the time and he looks at people in the eyes. You see, we don't have time here this morning, but when I choose to look at you in the eyes, what I'm saying is I see you. And I believe that you matter to God. I believe God has purpose and destiny for you. I believe God loves you and it humanizes us. Sometimes the danger about ministry, the danger about doing God's work, the danger about justice work is when we do things and we don't acknowledge the dignity and humanity of one another. I really believe so much of the ailments around the world is because we have dehumanized the other person. On both sides of the conflict in the Middle East, in, in, in Syria, in Iraq, even some of the racial tensions in our own country, we forget that the other person is also created in the image of God. Now let that sink in. Remember that woman who's been bleeding for many, many years and she's worming through the crowd in the Gospels. She's worming through the crowd and she says, if only I can touch Jesus, I will be healed. And she touches Jesus and she's healed. And Jesus asks a preposterous question. He says, who touched me? My first response is, Jesus, you're Jesus, you know everything. But you see, what Jesus wanted to do was pause and give people at that time and us a glimpse of God's kingdom that while the gospel is for everyone, it also sees the one. Jesus sees you, each and every single one of you. Jesus sees each one of you and loves you and wants to be in relationship with you, calls you back onto himself. It is profound. And so Jesus stops and tells this woman, your faith has made you well. You matter. Years ago in college, I was a, um, a double major. Many, many years ago, I was a, a psychology and theater major. I was not good in theater. I was cast for one and a half parts. And in one of the parts, I was playing a homeless person, and the director said to me, you're not very good. <laughs> and he challenged me to spend several days, several nights out on the streets as a homeless person to more deeply understand. So for four days, three nights, I went to the streets of San Francisco, had some bad stereotypes in my mind, dressed a certain way, had a sleeping bag, and camped out in front of a department store on Market Street in San Francisco. 
what I remember. <sighs> to this day, that has so impacted my worldview. Thousands of people walk past. And yes, on occasion, there were some people that flung coins at me. But over those days and nights, even with thousands of people walking past, no one would look at me in the eyes. And I had never felt so invisible, so insignificant, so inconsequential. You see, justice is about the work of dignity that in the name of Jesus, we can look at people and we say, God loves you, God sees you, you matter. Dignity, what that means is as much as we have things to teach, it also means we have things to learn. It's not just about us going to the third world and say, aha, Western savior, Asian man is here. Don't ever do that. <laughs> it's about us with humility coming and learning about what can we also learn. It's about looking at the homeless person and saying that there is God present in you as God is present in me. Dignity teaches us about mutuality, about reciprocity. You might be thinking um, about just the question of what can one person do? I want to introduce you to a family that I met in Burma, and I know I'm running out of time, but when I spoke with this particular elder of this village, I asked him what was hard, and he said, um, teacher salaries hard. So I said, how much are their salaries? He stuck out four fingers and he said, $40. So in my naivete, I said, uh, per day? And he laughed. So I said, I'm sorry, feeling like I insulted him. I said, $40 per week? He laughed again and he shook his head. With incredulity, I asked, um, $40 a month. His face turned stoic. I think he's irritated now. And he says, no. I was afraid to ask the next level. I'm sorry. Are you saying that... Um, are you saying that their salaries are $40 per year, and he finally nodded. Now, I share this not to make you feel guilty in any way, but there's two things I want you to know. One, there is great disparity in the world. And if there's one thing that I'd love for you to walk away with here is you need to know if you don't know this already, in a mobility upward culture where everyone is telling us and advertisers are telling us you don't have enough, you are blessed. We are blessed. 
I'm not suggesting that we need to adopt a theology of poverty, but what does a theology of enough look like in our life? If you get a chance, you know, afterwards, I'd love to meet you and say hi to you. There's a one day's wages booth outside. I'd love to just have you learn more about the work that it does. I want to close with this story, if I may. I, uh, I was reading a magazine. Uh, you know what those are? You, you flip through pages. It's great. It's amazing. And uh, I'm reading this magazine called National Geographic. I love outdoorish magazines. And I'm reading this magazine, and it's about the article of trapping monkeys in Africa. Kind of a brutal story. These hunters, they'll go to an area with a high population of monkeys, but as they go, they gather hundreds of coconuts. And then as they go, they drill a small hole right in the middle of the coconut, but not all the way through. About two-thirds, they'll excavate it, and then they pour sweet fermented rice. They then wrap the coconut with string, tie the ends to trees, so the next thing you know, you've got hundreds of coconuts suspended in the air. The hunters go away, the film camera is rolling, and the next thing you know, the monkeys, sensing the hunters are gone, drawn by the fragrance of the sweet rice, they descend from the trees, and then they begin to draw closer and closer to the coconuts. I don't know why I'm walking like this right now. (laughs) I'm committed to the story. Take it, you director, you. And then they, this is what they do, this is stunning. They take their paw, they'll shove it through this really tiny hole. And then they grab as much sweet rice as possible. They then try to take out their paw. It's stuck. They swear in monkey language at that time, but this is Overlake. And as I'm reading this, I'm getting really emotionally captivated by the story. I'm like, monkey, let go of the sweet rice. My wife is staring at me. But the kicker of the story is that they will not let go of the sweet rice because they place more value on the sweet rice than they do on their own freedom. Do you know why God calls us to live generously? Because generosity isn't just merely to bless others, it also helps set us free. As we close, I want to encourage you to think about What might be the sweet rices of your life? That we place so much value on these things, not that they're bad, but we grab onto them so much that we now become enslaved. And what does it mean then for us to pursue justice in our life? 
What does it mean for us to love our neighbors? What does it mean for us in light of what transpired in Ferguson and all around the country? What does it mean for us to be in solidarity with those who feel otherized and marginalized? What does it mean for Overlake to say, yes, we believe in the gospel, but we believe in the gospel so much that it compels us to be agents of people, agents of God who seek to speak words of hope in sexism and classism and racism. What does that mean? What does it mean for us to pursue the heart and character of God? That's my invitation and encouragement to you. God, we thank you again so much for your goodness and grace. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters here. We know that all of this is only possible because of your amazing and profound grace. God, we pray for the situations in Syria, in Iraq, all around the world, and we also pray for what has transpired in our country, even in Ferguson. God, we pray for all those involved. And we pray that we would not be bystanders or voyeurs, but that you would be teaching us what it means to be your ministers of justice, your ministers of grace, your ministers of reconciliation. God, we love you. And we thank you that you first loved us. And all God's people said, amen. amen.